So this morning we continue on uh, with uh, our uh, Sunday school teaching through uh, an Orthodox catechism, uh, which is the Heidelberg uh, Catechism for Baptists. Um, and the last couple of weeks, it's really kind of been an introduction uh, to, to the whole subject, uh, and then thinking about, uh, in particular, man's misery. Now, um, last week, Arnie was really trying to emphasize one thing uh, from question one. Does anyone remember what that was? Um, in regards to like, he's like, hey, this is like super important, right? Like you, you need to stay connected to this from question one uh, because this is gonna be like a theme that, that, that carries through for the rest of um, our lessons. Does anyone remember what that was? What's that? Belonging. Yeah, belonging, yeah. Mike, yep, perfect, yeah, belonging, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that I am not my own, but that I am my savior's, right? Um, and, uh, and then taking that to say then, all right, well then let us introduce that there's going to be three major subjects that, that are covered, right? Man's misery, man's redemption, and then man's thankfulness, right? Kind of the three major. And so right now, or, or, or another way that people have worded it, if you want to, if you're a, a, an alliteration type, you can do um, guilt, grace, and gratitude, right? And the idea that we're developing right now is we're seeing the backdrop and the blackness that's associated with man's misery in order to highlight the glory of God's grace, which will then find itself in, um, or w w which will then find expression in man's gratitude, right? Which, which, is, which is part three. So, right, that's, you know, kind of the logic that we've been hitting on and thinking about. So this morning, we will think more about the greatness of our sin and our misery only to highlight the glory of God's grace. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> So when we think about misery and we think about our sin, Arnie spent a lot of time last week to show that it was revealed from God's law. So God's law is the standard. It reveals what God expected of man, and it shows us truly how far we have fallen, right, with God's moral law. And so from there, the, the next logical question, this is where the catechism goes. And again, this will be the way to help teach us, to carry us through some of these doctrines, to think through what... Um, uh, their, their implications. So if uh, the way that question five ends is our, is our disposition that we don't love our, we don't love God and we don't love our neighbor, but instead our heart is prone to hate God and to hate one another, right? So the next logical question is, well, why? Why is that the case, right? Why is it that man is prone or tends towards this very destructive disposition, right? Which is not good for him or for anyone else. And, and then that's kind of where the, where the catechism fuel, if it's like a, a, a piece of yarn that's bundled up, right? You just keep pulling on it, right? And we'll go farther and farther into it. So that's what we'll cover this morning with questions six, seven, and eight. So, um, so with that, if I can have a volunteer uh, from your handout uh, read uh, question six, and then the answer to question six. All right, Norm. Did 
God then make man so wicked and perverse? Not so. He made him good and in his own image, endowing him with true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God his creator and heartily love him and live with him last forever, and that to laud and magnify him. All right. Great. Thanks, Norm. So you can see how this question kind of like sets it up, right? So is God the one who's responsible for this mess, right? And, you know, our answer is like Paul and Romans, right? God forbid. And, but then how? How, how, do we, how do we go about showing this? Well, what the catechism does here, and I think it's helpful, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll explore this, is it contrasts man's original excellence in creation with his current status and condition, right? So, and again, what, what it's doing is it's ascribing, no, what God did was very good, right? And, and, and when we see that with the excellence in which we were made in particular, right? The thing that, uh, a major distinguishing mark is that we are God's image, right? We are made in the image of God. We, we reflect God, right? It's this crown and glory that we receive. And then we contrast that with, with our current status. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, right? So let's, let's develop this. So when we look in Genesis chapter 1, right, Genesis, the book of beginnings. And in Genesis 1, right, it starts out with, with the creation narrative, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And, and, and then it expands on that. What God then does over those six days as a part of creation. Um... Now turn with me to uh, verse 26, and let us read uh, verses 26, and I will read to to, uh, verse 28. If I can have a volunteer, who'd be willing to read Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28? Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our life. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, awesome. Uh, and then, can I get a volunteer to read verses? Uh, so Genesis one, verse uh, thirty-one through Genesis two, uh, verse three. Thanks, Tim. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, verse uh, 31 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. Excellent. So the key thing that I want to point out here is in verse 31. So it's 
if you will, like God's, uh, God's analysis of creation, right? And, and the conclusion he comes to in verse 31 is that it's good, right? It's very good, right? So creation, we have this affirmation here that creation was very good. There was, there was no sin in creation, uh, but instead what God did was he created man and woman in his own image, right? Shared between them. They are both the image of God. And that's how he concludes in verse 31. In fact, in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 3, the reason why we keep reading is that it is so good that God then takes heavenly rest. Now, the, the, the point here is not that God got tired and then ceased working, but that God was building a universal temple, if you will. Right? It was a place to put forward his glory. And what he, what he does through Genesis chapter 1 he creates these spheres and then he fills them. And it's building up so that way the conclusion of chapter 2 is he's like a king who after he erects a temple, right? Like this is like um, in some of the cultures in the Bible time where they would erect a temple after they set up their kingdom. And once it's all done and they have secured peace on every side, if you will, they then sit down, right, on their throne and it is this royal rest, right? It shows that it's been completed and that there's victory. Now, again, it's not like God was battling cosmic, you know, you know, boogeyman or whatever, right? God, what it was showing is that God has taken his heavenly rest because everything in it was complete as God intended. And now man as uh, uh, man in the image of God is now to imitate God in this, um, uh, in this pattern, right, where he works for six days and rests on the seventh until man joins in with God in his heavenly rest, right? That rest that Hebrews 4 talks about that we look forward to. So, so the conclusion, so we see God's response is even confirming this very thing, that creation was made very good. Now look at me a little bit over into Genesis 2 and verse 7, right? Because when we talk about man as the image of God... We don't want it to be mistaken that it is, that it is only man's uh, uh, soulish or spiritual aspect or, 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 or part, if you will. Look at me in verse 7. As this is a more detailed explanation of uh, man and woman's creation, right? What happened on day 6. And in verse 7 it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And so here, there's two aspects that I want to bring out. One, that man is formed from the dust, right? So man is material. But then God breathed into him the spirit of life, right? The immaterial piece, right? So man, and we see this throughout the scripture, this idea of both body and soul, right? And that makes up one person. So the image of God is not only physical or only spiritual, but it is both, right? So the image of God in which man and woman are created is um, the physical soul union in one person. Now turn real quick to the book of Psalms, right? So like I said uh, when, when we started, turn to Psalm chapter 8. When, um, when we started, what, we're, what we want to do and what, what, what the catechism starts to lay out is, right, we, we look at man's misery, man's corruption, and then we ask the question, 
well, you know, is God responsible? No. And one of the ways that we do this is we contrast with man's original excellence in the way in which God created man and woman in the beginning. So in uh, Psalm chapter 8, and look with me in uh, verse, if I can have a volunteer actually read Psalm 8 and read verses 4 through 6. Excellent. So we see here, so in, in the beginning of Psalm 8, uh, uh, David is, is looking out in all of creation and glorying, right, in what God has made in creation, right, looking at the heavens, right? And then when he gets to man, it, it's this pause, right? He, he looks at man and, and then asks the question, what, what is man that you are mindful of him or that you care for him, Right? And then in verse 5, there's something that is significant. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. But then notice this. Crowned him with glory and honor, right? And in particular, I believe what, what God is ascribing to man here is the privilege and honor associated with being made in God's image, right? And then we see that in verse 6, right? Because how, does, how, how is that then explained? Well, you've given him dominion over the works um, of your hands, right? The very thing that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. So we see the same, same association here. Now, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. And I think it was Matthew Henry who said it, where he said, It was man's greatest honor to be made in God's image and God's greatest dishonor to be made in man's sinful image. And that's what we see here, right? What God created well or with glory and honor and with excellence, we see here becomes corrupted. But then we pull on the thread and we ask the question, what is God's purpose for creating man? And the way in which we, um, we answer this is look back to on, on your notes on the catechism in the answer here where it says, um, you know, that he made him good in his, in his own image and then starting with endowing, where he says, endowing him with true righteousness and holiness, and then the word that, or in order that, he might rightly know God his creator, and heartily love him, and live with him, blessed forever, and that to loud and magnify him, or to um, uh, glorify and praise him. Now with that, turn with me to John chapter 17. And I want, I want to try to help make some connections here that the catechism will do, and I want you to see how they're picking up and carrying and connecting themes from creation into themes in the Christian life, and to see that they're not disconnected or disjointed, but in fact related. So turn with me to John chapter 17. And, and for time's sake, we won't be able to trace, you know, like each word or phrase and how we see some of these connections. Um, so in John chapter 17, look with me. Sorry, I've went too far. In verse 3, so Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So then we ask this question, rhetorically, 
how does this statement about eternal life tie back to creation and the image of God? And what I would argue here is that what we see, right? So we see this very idea. We see the connection, right? What, what is it to have eternal life, right? If you kind of trace that all through John's gospel, right? It, it's, it's that you wouldn't work, but that you would believe on the one whom the Father has sent, right? And then what he talks about, and that, and, and, and that you would have eternal life. And then in verse 3, when he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That the, that the essence of eternal life, if you will, or what, what Jesus is talking about here, is communion with God. That restored relationship that we have with God, right? But then we tie that back to creation. That was the very thing that Adam and Eve were created for. And so what we see is that with creation, there's an original purpose, right? But then with the fall, that purpose is not lost. But instead, it is only in man's redemption where that purpose is not only restored, but it is heightened. And that is what we will go on further with, right? So we only realize this now after the fall of Adam and Eve through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is only through the gospel that we can have fellowship with God. But with Adam and Eve, this was something they, they had immediately when they were created with God. Um, in fact, go back uh, real quick to Genesis chapter 3 with me. In Genesis chapter 3, I, w- I want you to, to notice this. And, and the reason why this, this spikes out Yeah, there it is in verse 8. Um, in Genesis 3 and verse 8, right? So Genesis 3 talks about the fall, right? And, and what happened, right? How um, Adam and Eve gave in to sin, right? At the, at the instigation of the devil through his deceptive words and the way in which he uh, went about deceiving them. But in chapter 3 and verse 8, notice this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, it's interesting, uh, with the tense that's used here, that, it, that this doesn't seem to be like the first time that this happened. But in fact, that this was an established pattern where the Lord would dwell with them in the garden. That there was a communing, a relationship, a fellowship, a sharing that they had with the Lord in creation, right? So we see this relational idea, even, even here in verse 8, that then's broken, right? Where it's like some, something seems wrong, right? Like the Lord's walking in the, in, the, in the cool in the garden, and all of a sudden they flee, they run. And so what this is pointing at is that man's purpose, right? You, you've heard it said, right? Man's purpose is to know God and make him known, right? We, we see this very thing here, and this is tied with man being in God's image, Right, so as an image of God, if you remember back from a couple of Sunday school series we did ago on uh, the theme of prophet, priest, and king, and we talked about this, right? How Adam and Eve, they were made to know God and to reflect God's glory by representing him and ruling over all creation. And they were to take that special presence of God in the Garden of Eden, and they were to extend it to the ends of the earth. Furthermore, they were then to fill the earth, 
right? And um, with godly children or with images that would then reflect that very same glory. And, and like Isaiah says, it would then become the glory of God would become like the waters that cover the face of the earth, right? That was the intended goal is that all of creation would be this special place of God's dwelling filled with his creatures who are reflecting his glory, right? So we see here the excellence in which God made man in his image and God was made, or, or man was made in such a way to, to know him and that being uh, tied in to the image. Now, I want to follow up with, with one more thing or actually two more things. So then I'll ask this question and I'll look, I'll look for a response. So this one is not rhetorical. As images of God, were Adam and Eve created at their full potential? Were Adam and Eve created at their full potential? So, and I, and I don't mean this to say, uh, did they not have an aspect of glory, but were they created at, you know, if you will, to use, you know, really awkward grammar, their most fullest potential? Were they created at that most fullest potential? Or when they were created, was there something more to be gained? Yes. And that, that hadn't happened yet. Correct. Yep. And we see that idea carried as well, that man was still in an immature state, that, um, that he was to grow in wisdom of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and then, um, yep, no, no, exactly. And, there, and there's several things that we'll kind of uh, uh, pull on this. So, again, what we read in Psalm 8 is true, that God created Adam and Eve with honor and glory, right? That he crowned them with that. But that doesn't mean that they weren't created with still this greater potential to be gained. Uh, look with me real quick in Genesis chapter 3. Just, just, real, just real quick. Um, I want you to see something, right? So this is after they sin, and, um, and then God closed them, right? He comes to them and he closed them. But notice this. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um... Yeah, in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, right, this is, this is Adam and Eve in their sinful condition. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the issue here, right? So we see this phrase about eternal life. But it, God kept man from, from securing an eternal state of corruption, right? Knowing the promise that he gave in Genesis 3 in verses 15 and 16 with what will happen with that coming seed of the woman and how she'll crush the head of the serpent, right? So he, he puts them out and he guards and he protects from the tree of life, right? So that they wouldn't in their corrupted state stay in that state forever, right? But we see this idea that, that, there's, this, that there's this potential for more, 
and that they could then live forever, right? Well, then in, in, in what way? And so uh, what I would say here to this is that Adam and Eve, um, that they were created with honor and glory, but it was a changeable honor and glory. It was an honor and glory that could be lost. Now, what is the opposite of that? An honor and glory that cannot be lost. An irreversible honor and glory. And what I would say is that is the very thing that they were created for was that irreversible honor and glory that they would have in communing with God and never having to worry about the breach of sin, the loss of fellowship, right? The threat of death, right? And in the, uh, and, and through later in the Bible, we have words to describe this concept of greater glory, like resurrection or resurrection life or eternal life, right? These very things that talk about that, that security that we have, right? Never to be lost. That, that peace and security that comes with that, right? It is life to its fullest without the potential for sin to mar, corrupt, and ruin it. It is a life that is blessed in its truest sense. And this is what theologians have coined, right, from a theological standpoint, the covenant of works or the covenant of life or the covenant of creation. They've used different terms to help describe this. And, and, and we may get into this uh, more, uh, seeing if time permits. So then I want to follow up secondly, right? So in the catechism, it then references a couple of texts, and I want to look at them as they, uh, as they reference New Testament verses on sanctification, but then apply it to creation, right? So then we're going back to then ask that question. Well, in how, how, how is that then taking place? So look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And then if I can have a volunteer read verses 22 through 24. Excellent. So we notice that in verse 24, right? And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see this idea here of what's tied in sanctification, right? In a believer's restoration, but then it's using this creation language, right? Created in. And then using the likeness of God is a phrase that's used again from Genesis chapter 1. So we see this connection that what takes place in sanctification, right, with the words that it's using, is that there's a renewal that's taking place to what we had back in creation, right? But then it's going towards its greater goal of complete sanctification, right? Or that, or that, um, that shalom or that rest that happens when it can no longer be lost, right? That complete security, 
that's associated with it. And now look with me real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3. Um, so go back. Go back real quick with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because we have in the New Testament a couple times where it will use this image language, right? So we think about man's excellence and how he was created and how it was not and how it was Adam and Eve's sin through the provoking of Satan in the garden that brought all this misery. So in verse 18, who'd be willing to read uh, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18? Excellent. Yeah, thanks, Norm. And notice that, right? So, and, and, and uh, like the Norm's translation brings out, there's this progressive sense associated with the tense here in verse 18, right? That we are being transformed, right? It's ongoing. And who are we being, uh, in, in whose image are we being conformed to, right? Well, it's the same thing that we are beholding in verse 18, beholding the glory of the Lord, and according to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the more that we behold him, the more that we are becoming like him in his image, and this through the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, what's the connection I want to make? Is that when we tie this all the way back to our original creation, right? The very thing that's being restored and renewed in sanctification was the thing that was originally endowed on us in creation, but it was not in its fullest form, right? That fullest form will take place in, like it says in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, when we enter in resurrected glory, right? The new heavens and new, new earth, the new Jerusalem, right? And it's in its fullest sense. Norm. Yeah, so, um, nope, great point. So, beholding the Lord, I, I would say, you, you would think of this in, in you, you could go with this from an application in many directions. So you could think of one would be um, in our corporate times of worship, right? Whenever the word is preached and the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ is preached, right? As we're benefiting and believing, right? Because you don't see Jesus by like, you know, we, we look at and we watch a movie, right? But, 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 but it's more so in the sense that as we, that we're seeing Jesus by the eyes of faith. And as we behold him that way, we are more so conformed to his image, right? Now that same thing happens in our private devotions and our family worship through Bible, you know, all the different ways in which we benefit um, from hearing about Christ. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question on, um, on, on, on the application side. All right. So let's go to, um, let's go to question seven. So we'll hit questions seven and eight here. So then it follows up, right? So like we saw in, in question six, so did God then make man so wicked and perverse? Not so, right? And, and we highlighted man's original excellence 
and his created glory and honor. But then in verse 7, from what source does the wickedness of man's nature arise? And the answer here, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, for this reason, our nature is so corrupt and we are all conceived and born in sin. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 5, right? Because it's, again, pulling on that thread. So if God didn't make us evil, then how did we end up evil, right? And in part, this goes back to what we said earlier, that though man had honor and glory, right? You know, sometimes people will use um, ambiguous language. They're like, hey, well, did God make man perfect or was man not perfect, right? And we want to be careful with words like that because it's not whether God made man perfect or imperfect, but it's whether God made man in his fullest expression of glory or with the potential, right? And God made man with the potential. And a part of that potential was that, the, but that man and woman would honor God in exercising wisdom and showing dominion over all creatures, including the serpent, right? But it was, in fact, that very trial and testing with Satan in the garden where it showed man's capability to fall from such a glorious state. So look with me in, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 5. So we see this thing that that takes place in Genesis 5, in in verse 1, in Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created, right? So we see that from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. But now notice in verse 3, and this is where I would argue for the transmission of sin, and we'll we'll get into this. In verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, what? In his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So now what takes place here is that the image of God is still carried on, but it's carried on how? In its corrupted state, right? So now all the descendants of Adam and Eve, they receive a sin nature from their first parents because they are also created in their parents' sinful image. Right, look with me real quick in Genesis 2, right? You guys, you you remember, right, in in the garden, when God says, of every tree you may eat in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And then they put, and then the Lord puts a clause on that in verse 17, where he says, in verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for, and then notice this, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die, right? So then what takes place here in Genesis chapter 2, right? Does man immediately, do do Adam and Eve immediately die? No, they do not in a physical sense. But oh, they do die in a spiritual sense. So keep a finger in Genesis, right? Real quick, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, right, we see this language, right? In Ephesians chapter 2. 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So notice that language, right? You were dead in sin, right? So there's a spiritual sense in which you are dead, and yet in a physical sense where you are still alive. And then notice how Paul describes this in verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and then who is affected by this in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like what? Like the rest of mankind. So there is this universal plague, right, of spiritual death, and that ties back to Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 5, because that nature is transmitted from our parents, Adam and Eve, to all their children who are made in their likeness. Right, And we, we even see this immediately, like we read in Genesis 3.8, that there is a loss of fellowship. Right, So it, it seems in, in verse 8 of chapter 3 that there was a fellowship, a communing that happened with the Lord and with Adam and Eve, and then they partake of the fruit, and then the Lord, if you will, is doing his normal course, his normal pattern, and their pattern breaks, right? There's this loss of fellowship, which is the direct result of sin's entrance, right? And that's why David in Psalm 51, that, that psalm of repentance, right, where David is broken, and, it, and, you, and, and if you will, he's pulling on that thread, where he's tracing it all the way back, right? Thinking about his own sin, where he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Right, so sin is not something that comes like later in life, but sin starts at the very beginning because we are transmitting our sin nature from one generation to the next because of our original parents' fall. For time's sake, we won't get into uh, Romans. If you will, just write down two texts that are, that are on there. So one is Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. And the second text is 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For time's sake, we won't be, get, be able to get into it. I'll just make a, a quick comment, and then we'll go to the, to the next question. Unfortunately, I've spent a little too much on chapter uh, question 6. So the comment that I would make is what we have just studied looking at Genesis 5 and some of these other texts, is what theologians have called original sin, right? So the sin of our first parents and how it is transmitted, right, with its sin nature, its loss of righteousness down to each generation, right? With every child that then comes forward, there's a sin nature, and Paul picks up that on that in Ephesians 2, right? That, we're, that all of us are the sons of disobedience, and that makes us children of wrath. But then secondly, and, and what I would argue, and again, I won't be able to get to it, is in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul is arguing when he says that, that all of us have sinned in Adam is not so much that it is the transmission of Adam's sin, but it is instead the imputation of Adam's sin and guilt that condemns all of us in him because the reverse is true, and that is this. 
that it is not the transmission of Jesus' righteousness that gains eternal life for us, but it is, in fact, the imputation of Christ and his righteousness that becomes our grounds to stand before God um, in, in eternal life. So, again, so we, we have two problems, right, if you will. Um, uh, we, we've, we've got... Um, uh, we've, we've got uh, uh, a heart issue and a guilt issue, right? So, um, again, so just, just, just by way of, of a quick comment. So, question eight. <clears throat> are we so corrupt that we are not able to do well and are prone to all vice? Answer. Indeed, we are, except we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll look at a couple texts quickly, and then I'll do something similar by way of comment. So we're in the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 6, right? So we're going to go to the flood. And right up to the flood, right before God floods the earth, there's a comment here that is not only true of Noah's day, but it is true for every generation before and after. And that is um, uh, in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. So Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? That's a really strong statement. Right? That all of mankind, naturally born, in the image of Adam and Eve, the heart is only evil continually. Now notice this in, in Jeremiah chapter uh, 17. Real quick, by, by way of uh, going to the prophet there. In Jeremiah 17, and in verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And it's really asked in this way. No one can really understand it can they, right? It's intended for us to come come to a a conclusion about it. It's not asking it rhetorically. The heart is deceitful above all things. So, and that's what we see in Romans, right? Like, if we remember in Romans chapter 1, how does man naturally respond with the innate knowledge of God that he has by being made in his image and creation, right? Well, he takes that knowledge of God and he suppresses it, right? He puts it in a box, according to Romans 1.19, and he suppresses it for idolatry, right? For um, where, where, where man becomes the center of his universe. And then in Romans chapter 2, what happens, right? Paul then says, well, not only do we talk about the people without the Bible, but when we talk about the people with the Bible, we still have the same problem because they have the same heart, right? And so... Because they have the same heart, we then see that Paul then comes to a conclusion in Romans chapter 3 that are we Jews better than they, the Greeks? No, not at all. For all have been condemned under sin, right? And then that that famous expression from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Right? So there's this universal condemnation, not only associated with Adam and what Adam did, but then even our own personal sins, 
right, that have then contributed to that. But the question is, is worded not just in such a way to show us our corruption and condemnation, but it says, are we so corrupt that we are not at all able to do well and are prone to all vice? And the answer here is, indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I want you to see this. So the reality is, because, just because the spread and extent of sin might be total in the sense that it has affected every faculty of us, our thinking, our feeling, our affections, our purpose, our will, our worship, all those things, all of them have been affected, but then the qualification is, but we are not as evil as we can be. And, and there's reasons for this, but we, we won't get into them right now. What I do want to show you is, look with me in, I'm sorry, in John chapter uh, 1 in, verse, in verses 10 through 13, where it says this, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we see here with this contrast, right? So the world naturally is not seeking for the light, right? But the world instead is, is running away from it. But then, like it says in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people, what did they do? They did not receive him. But the ones who did receive him are the ones who believed, right? But then the question is, and this is what verse 13 answers, well, why is it that the ones who believed on his name, why is it that they believed, right? Why were they not like the rest of the world or the Jews that were like his own that did not receive him? And that's what verse 13 is looking to explain to us. And it's the very thing that the architects of this catechism are, are also trying to help us see. Look at that in verse 13. So the ones who became children of God, who were born not of blood, not of lineage, nor of the will of the flesh, right? Or of the will of man, but in fact, they were born of God. So there's the sense in which God does this regenerating work, right, where he gives life. And when we receive life, we are then empowered now to respond back to God because that sinful nature that we've received from Adam and Eve through the work of regeneration or the giving of new life, we can now do the thing that we were once opposed to, right? Where we draw near to the light and we believe on the Lord Jesus. Look with me real quick in John chapter 6. And then I apologize. We, we, we spent too much time on, on question 6. Real quick, in, in John um, 6, we'll hit on two verses from here. So in John 6, look at me in verse 44. Where Jesus says, No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice this in verse 44, no one can come, right? He's not talking about permission. It's not that no one may come, but it's that no one can. That can word is very important. That's the word for ability, right? That no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then look with me when we get to verse 60, where he says, right, because now people are taking offense to what Jesus is saying. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And notice this in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So there's this connection here between natural men and women not able to come to God. And again, it's an issue of ability. And like we've gone over in questions six and seven, it's not because of creation, a defunct in creation, but it's because of original corruption and what happened to our desires, our will. Everything was affected. And that's why he then says, but it is, in verse 63, the spirit who gives life. Just like um, Jesus talked about that it's the one whom the Father calls. And the Father uses the spirit to grant life because the spirit is life. The flesh is no help, right? The flesh being who we are in Adam, right? We cannot accomplish that. It's only through the spirit and the spirit's regenerating work that gives us life, that heals our wills, if you will, so that the, the thing that we used to not find any delight or taste in, when we receive that life through the spirit, when he regenerates and gives us life, that becomes the very thing that we hunger and thirst for, like Ezekiel says, that he takes out that heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, right? This, this pumping, working heart. Unfortunately, um, we'll, uh, we will, we'll close here. Um, and uh, let, let me go ahead and give thanks. Father, we do thank you for this, um, for this time. And we do, even as we highlight and we think about the fall and the original glory and, and all the things that, that were there and, and the end for which you created us, we do give you thanks because it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you have secured this very thing for us and that we will dwell with you forever in this secure state of happiness and blessed life forever. Bless our time even now as we go to enter into corporate worship for your glory and our good. Amen. You may be dismissed.